think with me about what the comfortable life might look like. If I say that to you, the comfortable life, the comfortable life, what comes to mind? Uh, For many, a comfortable life could include, I mean, a lot of things, but for many, it has to include comfort food, right? Comfort food. Uh, That's not only good food, certain kinds of food, but also lots of choices of food. It's the ability to have lots of choices at home, the ability to go out whenever you want, to enjoy that great meal. That's part of that comfortable life, isn't it? Many people would put that there. For others, a comfortable life means a life of of laughter, a life of fun instead of stress and toil and, and the heaviness of life. That's not comfortable. The comfortable life is what we're talking about. And still other people, when they hear that, uh, they would say, well, there has to be people. There have to be people in my life that, that I can enjoy this with. The comfortable life includes others. But, but, but drama-free relationships, please. Easy people, easy people who like me, who respect me, and who don't expect too much of me. That sounds pretty comfortable, doesn't it? It sounds like a comfortable life. Good food, good times, good friends. But hold on, hold on, we're not done. Let's not forget the financial freedom that we need to fund this kind of life. Right? It's not cheap eating out all the time. It's not cheap taking your friends out for this or that. I'm going to take you on a cruise. I'm going to do this. We're going to just enjoy ourselves and we're going to relax. And I've got the money to be able to do that. The comfortable life is a life free of financial anxiety, but full of a, a financial ability. Does all of that sound about right to you? The comfortable life. But what if I were to tell you that this morning Jesus wants to warn you about that life. He wants to warn you in the most serious way about that kind of life. Now, some might hear that statement and think, but pastor, doesn't Jesus want us to be happy? (laughs) Doesn't Jesus want us to be happy? I mean, come on. Uh, why would he warn us about these good things? Well, let's answer that question by looking together at this passage at Luke chapter 6, the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. In this passage from last week's readings, listen to how Jesus touches on every idea I just mentioned to you. Every idea. Look what he says here. I'm going to be reading from verses 24 through 26 of Luke chapter 6. These are the words of Christ. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Wow, things just got real serious. Money, food, laughter, respect, slap, slash, reputation. Did you see them there? 
money, food, laughter, and respect slash reputation. Jesus touched on all of them. Those are all the ingredients we just talked about earlier. The ingredients to cook up a comfortable life, as it were. But every time Jesus talks about one of these things, money, food, laughter, respect, slash reputation, every time he talks, starts talking about one of these, he begins by saying, woe to you. That is, what does that mean? We don't use that phrase a lot, do we? What does it mean? It means this. Beware, be worried, be wailing. Beware, be worried, be wailing. That's what woe to you means. So what exactly is going on here? What exactly is happening here about this comfortable life? Why is Jesus speaking in these terms? Well, one of the things I want you to see here is this isn't simply our cultural context that makes this confusing. Because we hear that and we think, wait a minute, money, food, laughter, respect, slash reputation, sound good to me. Wow. Why is he being so harsh about this? Uh, the, the dissonance here, the confusion is not just about our culture today. It's also about the Old Testament culture. Because look what it says in the Old Testament. Take a look on the screen. We'll, we'll put some verses up there. Ecclesiastes 5.19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. All right, that's more like it, right? (laughs) That's more like it when it comes to talking about wealth and possessions. How about Psalm 107 and Psalm 111? For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul, the hungry person he fills with good things. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Psalm 126 Verses 1 and 2, when Yahweh, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them, his people. Proverbs 22, 1 says this, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. And when we take that idea about favor and reputation, having a good name, when we take that idea into the New Testament, we find all sorts of people who have this kind of good name. Uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 22, it mentions Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Oh, we're speaking well of him. And Paul describes one Ananias. Remember him? The first person Paul ever laid eyes on as a Christian (laughs) after he was blind, right? So a devout man, according it says he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived in Damascus. That's Acts 22, verse 12. Money, food, laughter, respect, slash reputation. Those all sound like gifts from God. Those all sound like blessings from God. What is going on here in Luke 6? 
Why is Jesus raving like this in verses 24 through 26? Well, the first thing that we need to consider if we want to understand this, the first thing that we need to consider that we always need to consider is the immediate context. Look with me at the immediate context. These are the verses that come right before our main passage. We're looking at verses 20 through 23 of Luke chapter 6. And he lifted up his eyes, Jesus did, on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, do you recognize that language? Now, in one sense, you recognize that because it's the same exact items, topics that we just heard about in verses 24 through 26. Money, food, laughter, respect slash reputation. You see that? They're all right there. But the other reason this language should sound familiar to you is because this is Beatitudes language. This is Beatitudes language. What I mean is... It sounds a lot like what are called the Beatitudes, that opening section of Matthew chapter 5, what we know as the opening section of the longest recorded teaching session of Jesus in Scripture, a discourse traditionally known as what? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. But that opening section in Matthew 5 starts like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven matthew 5 verse 3 you'll see it on the screen here blessed are the poor but this time it says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven matthew 5 3 a few verses after that jesus declares blessed are those who hunger that sounds familiar and thirst for righteousness is how matthew has it for they shall be satisfied that's Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. So something's different here, isn't it? Something's different between Matthew 5 and Luke chapter 6. What Luke wants to make clear, if we look back at our passage this morning, what Luke wants to make clear to us is that this is not the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Luke six seventeen. It says, And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. See that? He's clear about the geography. Why is he making note of the geography there? I think because he wants to be clear that this is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on a level place. Sometimes called this the Sermon on the Plain. So as you read through Luke chapter 6, you will find many similarities to what we find in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. Lots of things are not here. There are many things that are there in the Sermon on the Mount, but this is not the same incident. Maybe it was a day apart. I don't know. 
It was the next day that Jesus gave this and all these ideas were fresh on his mind. But we see an adaptation, don't we, of what he is saying. We saw that in those two examples. Blessed are the poor and blessed are those who are hungry. But this Sermon on the Plain, as you read through this, we, we look at this, we look at these blessed statements to begin with. These blessed are you statements in Luke chapter 6 verses 20 through 23, though they are distinct from Matthew chapter 5, they are still driven by the same staggering reality. That's what fuels these same exact statements. Jesus cannot say blessed are you unless there is a reality that truly makes us blessed, right? By which we are truly blessed people. And that staggering reality is right there in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. That is the key. If you don't already know this, the kingdom of God was the main subject of Jesus' ministry. It's what he announced. It's what he proclaimed. It's what he taught. It's what he emphasized. It's what he died for. It's what he rose for. Someone who says, oh, no, no, the main teaching, Pastor, you're, you're quite mistaken. The main teaching of Jesus is love. No, I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. That was not the main teaching of Jesus. The main teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven is just simply another way to say it. Exact same thing. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they're exactly the same. This was his main subject. And what we find here in chapter 6 of Luke, verses 20 through 23. Remember, we're in the context here. What we find here is Jesus reassuring his disciples that this inbreaking kingdom, this new dawning of God's reign as king should radically alter their understanding of reality. Here's how. Though a person's poverty or hunger or sorrow might lead them to believe otherwise... In light of the kingdom, they are indeed blessed. Does that make sense? How easy it is in the face of poverty or hunger or sorrow to say, Oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. My life stinks. My life is not going the right way. Oh, God, why? Let me muster as much dramatic energy as I can. Oh, why? You know, it's just something like that. We're saying to ourselves, right? We're filling out the invitations for our pity party. We're putting them in the mail. We're making sure people get them. We're beating ourselves up. What did I do wrong? Why is God judging me? Poverty, sorrow, hunger. But Jesus comes along and says, no, in fact, you are blessed. You are blessed. Why is that? It's because by grace through Jesus, the provision and abundance and satisfaction and comfort and joy of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God is theirs in fullest measure. Ephesians chapter one. Christ has made possible for us, has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Not one is held back from you. They all belong to you if you have trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord. They all belong to you. And so all of this abundance, all of this comfort, all of this joy, all of this satisfaction, all of this provision is theirs because of the kingdom. And not only right now, in some form or fashion, inside and outside. Remember when Jesus said, if you've left a family to come and follow me, you will receive, right, in this life, family and houses and other things that you left. But in the life to come, eternal life. It's almost like eternal life is the catch-all to say, God's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you right now. Trust him for that. Because if he takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, you better believe he's going to take care of you because the blood of his son was spilled for you. Right? So if that's true... Then he says he's going to take care of you and provide for you even when you are struggling with poverty, hunger, sorrow. And in the end, it's all going to be good. Oh, it's going to be good in a way that's like bigger than you can even understand because it's eternal life. Not only now will they experience these things in some form or fashion, inside and outside, but one day they will, we will experience God's fullness, abundance, provision, satisfaction, comfort, and joy in every way, in everything. In every way, in everything. Are you longing for that day? Ephesians calls that the summing up of all things in Christ. The summing up of all things in Christ. Notice the verb tenses in 20 and 23. For yours is the kingdom of God. Your reward is great in heaven in verse 23. Present tense. Notice also now the future tense in verses 21 and 22. For you shall be satisfied. For you shall laugh. Like the kingdom itself, its blessings are both now and not yet. Now and not yet. We struggle with that sometimes, don't we? We struggle with that tension between those two things. But God wants us to embrace that tension. He wants to embrace us because it calls us to faith, doesn't it? It calls us to to believe, to hold on, even when we can't see it. If God just spoiled us and we got everything that we wanted to the degree that we wanted in the way that we wanted in the time that we wanted, He would not be growing us in faith. He would not be refining us the way that He is purposed to refine us. Okay, so okay, we've looked at the context here, haven't we? We've looked at the context. But in light of that context here, in light of verses 20 and 23 specifically, think now about the contrast. Consider the contrast that we find in our main passage in verses 24 through 26. Look back at those verses. What does it say? It says, instead of blessedness in light of the kingdom's consolation, those who are rich are those who have, verse 24, already received, past tense, their consolation. They've already received their consolation. They have it. That's it. There's nothing else. 
Instead of blessedness in light of the kingdom's provision for us, those who are, verse 25, full now, notice the word, N-O-W, now, they're full now, will one day, says Jesus, they will experience a kind of hunger that's far worse than any hunger you can imagine. They will experience hunger pains in eternity, eternal lack, eternal deprivation. That's the warning. Instead of blessedness in light of the kingdom's joy, those who, verse 25, laugh now, now, today, will one day experience instead, in contrast, an even worse kind of anguish. Weeping, eternal weeping in the outer darkness. Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 8. Do you see what Jesus is emphasizing here? He's emphasizing the time frame. That's one of the things he's emphasizing. The time frame. He, he says all of us want ultimate consolation, don't we? We want to experience ultimate consolation and provision and joy. But Christ's question to us is, are we willing to wait for it? Are you willing to wait for it are you, or are you demanding that it be right now? Again, because of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, God freely offers us all three of these things, consolation, provision, and joy. But he offers us all three of these things, not always in the ways that we want, not always to the extent that we want, not always when we want. But the world says, oh, you can have it now. You can have it all right now. Jesus, interestingly, does not disagree. He doesn't disagree. He doesn't say, oh, liar, world, you, liar. He doesn't disagree with that. But he does warn us about the quality of what the world is offering to us. You want consolation, Jesus says? Go ahead. It's there. The world's offering you that consolation, take it. But I want to tell you about the quality of what it's offering you. Uh, Specifically, I want to tell you that it will not last. It simply will not. It will not last. So in essence, Jesus is asking his listeners here, what will it be? Temporary consolation now through worldly wealth or eternal consolation later in light of the riches of God. But there's another aspect to all of this. Look at the last item contrasted here. We see that contrast when we compare verses 22 and 23 with verse 26. Do you see that? So in the former passage, Jesus taught, Blessed are you when people hate you. Huh? What? (laughs) Sounds really weird, doesn't it? Oh, blessed are you when people hate you. No, pastor, you're crazy. Don't take this up with me, man. Take this up with Jesus. This, he's the one who's saying it here. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. It's getting worse. When they revile you. Not done. They spurn your name as evil. Here it is. On account of the Son of Man. When they treat you that way, on my account, says Jesus then you should 
consider yourself blessed. More than that, you should rejoice in that same day when you are being so horribly mistreated. I know you want to cry, but instead you should rejoice. Well, why is that? Sounds crazy. You should rejoice in that day. Even more than that, you should leap for joy. Woohoo! Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great before the Father. You want proof of that? This is how their fathers treated the prophets. And you, you revered the prophets, don't you? And they say, yes, we revered the prophets. They were used by God. They spoke the word of God. Well, guess what? When they spurn you, when they revile you, when they mistreat you on my account, it shows that there is divine grace at work in your life. It shows that the Holy Spirit of God is empowering you and working through your life. And that's what they're rubbing up against. That's where the friction is. It shows you, it proves to you, it reassures you that you are of the age to come. And they are of the present corrupt generation. So be encouraged that you belong to God. As Jesus said in one of our readings from this past week, don't be encouraged. Don't be excited. Don't take comfort in the fact that the demons listen to you. Rejoice instead that your name is written in heaven. Whoa. Wow, what a good corrective for us to see that, to understand that. This is part of the contrast here. So on account of the Son of Man, but look at the, look at the contrast. Verse 26, woe to you instead of blessed, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, do you see how the context here helps us understand the contrast here, which in turns help, turn helps us understand the point Jesus is making here. To whom are these woes directed? Verses 24 through 26. They are directed at those who are not willing to suffer for the Son of Man. That's who he's talking to. Those who are unwilling to suffer for the Son of Man. Money, food, laughter, respect, slash reputation. The question here is not, is it right or wrong to possess or experience or be satisfied by by such things? That is not the question. The question Jesus is asking is this. Do you value such things to the degree that you would reject Jesus if he somehow threatened these things in your life? Notice how Jesus uses the prophets here, true and false prophets in the Old Testament. God's prophets suffered for the truth, but not the false prophets. Nope. Why were the false prophets false? Because they told the people what they wanted to hear, not what God wanted them to hear. That's why they were false prophets. When it came to prophecy, they cared more about what would be popular rather than what would be profitable. Why did they do that? Because they cared more about pleasing other people than they did pleasing God. You see, the woes of Jesus here are not simply directed at people with money or people with full stomachs or people who are laughing or people who are well-liked. They are directed at people who desire those things above everything else 
including God. That's the issue. Listen to the balanced way in which the Apostle Paul uses these same principles, the teaching of Jesus, and applies them. He addresses just one of these groups Jesus, that Jesus addressed here in Luke chapter 6, the rich. This is what Paul said. Take a look. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. As for the rich in this present age, woe to you! You don't even have a chance! Kiss it all goodbye, sucker! You're going down and burning! No, that's not at all what he's saying. Look at what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, arrogant, puffed up because of their wealth, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead on God who richly provides us He's the one who provides us with everything that we have, everything to enjoy. He gives us things that we can enjoy them. He doesn't give us things and say, I don't want you enjoying that. Don't you dare enjoy that, right? You're just going to need to squeak by, and that's about it. No, he gives us everything to enjoy when he gives us blessings. They are, the rich are to do good. That is, they're to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share with what God's given them, thus storing up treasure for themselves. There's eternal wealth. There's heavenly treasure that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. They're actually, do, by doing this, they are accumulating wealth for themselves that is eternal wealth. And that that wealth is a good foundation for the future. Luke talks about using the wealth of this world to prepare heavenly habitations for yourself that those that you bless will welcome you into the presence of God because you have used your financial blessings in a way that glorifies Him. It shows that you're not putting your trust in it, that you're not setting your hope on it. And he says all this so that they may take hold of that which is truly life because there is no true life in our wealth and what we can purchase and buy with money is never can be life don't you love the way paul beautifully balances all of these truths and he brings out this teaching uh, the teaching of christ in this way brothers and sisters friends listen we need to ask ourselves some questions this morning how many of us are people with money The answer is all of you. All of you. You all have money. How many of us are people with full stomachs? Guessing that's all of you. How many of us are people who regularly laugh? That's me, I know that. How many of us are people who are well-liked? And because of all that, are we people who are living comfortably? If that is true... If that is true of you, if that is true of us to whatever degree, then we must listen carefully this morning to how Jesus is warning us about that life, the comfortable life. I mentioned a moment ago that the people to whom Jesus is speaking here are the people who desire money, food, laughter, and respect slash reputation above everything else, including God. The Bible has a name for that. It's called idolatry. Idolatry. 
And when we make the comfortable life an idol, we fall under this warning from Jesus Christ. We better listen. As I've mentioned, God is not opposed to you and me being comfortable. We should give thanks to the Father of lights. We should give thanks for every good gift that he gives to us, every blessing that comes from above, every comfort that we enjoy. Give thanks to God. Look to him and acknowledge that blessing. But here's the point. Listen, we cannot get too comfortable with being comfortable. Let me unpack that more. We cannot get too comfortable with being comfortable. Why? Because being comfortable can easily lead, as Scripture shows us, to becoming spiritually sluggish. Being comfortable can easily lead, as the Word of God testifies, to being resistant to discomfort even when God Himself requires it of you. He says, You need to be uncomfortable right now. It is my purpose and my plan for you. And when we are too comfortable with being comfortable, we say, no, I don't want that. I'm not listening to you. I'm not doing that. Jesus said in John chapter six, verse 33, in the world, you will have, take a look, you will have tribulation. Paul told the young churches, the newly formed churches that he planted, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 Believer, tribulation is not comfortable. Believer, discomfort should be expected when it comes to following Jesus. We're told this very, very clearly. But how easy it is for us to buy what our culture is constantly selling us. How easy it is for us to buy that this idea that the comfortable life is to be sought above everything else. That the comfortable life is to be defended above everything else. That the comfortable life is to be justified above everything else. Be honest with yourself. How many of us work for the sake of the comfortable life? How many of us manage our time for the sake of the comfortable life? How many of us practice selective hearing when it comes to the word of God For the sake of the comfortable life. Or how many of us, how many of you are complaining or moaning or griping even today because your comfortable life feels threatened? You see how Jesus warns us? Luke chapter 6. He is confronting us, the comfortable with the truth that such comfort today only leads, this kind of comfort leads only to eternal discomfort. When is the comfortable life a problem? When it produces people who are comfortable ignoring God. That's when it's a problem. That's when it's a problem. 
So Jesus is warning us in Luke 6. He's confronting these comfortable people with the truth that such comfort today only leads to eternal discomfort. But at the same time, when we are willing to suffer discomfort now for Christ, sacrificial giving, being judged or rejected by others in the name of Jesus, putting others before myself, living that third place life. When we are willing to suffer discomfort now for Christ, when we are willing to live an uncomfortable life for the sake of Christ, we can rest assured that eternal comfort awaits us according to God's own promises, according to the gospel of Jesus. Do you want that eternal comfort? Do you want it? The gospel also reminds us that through Jesus, through His work, through His eternal, ultimate, not eternal, but His ultimate discomfort, through the ultimate discomfort that He endured, On the cross, God provides us with abiding comfort for today, even today. We can experience that now. Comfort for when the obedient life is the uncomfortable life. Have you been there before? When the obedient life, your obedient life before God was the uncomfortable life? It was very hard. Stretching you in ways just made you feel, ugh. In those times, the gospel promises us hope. Listen to the entirety of John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Read comfort. Have comfort. In the world you will have tribulation. Read discomfort. But take heart, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. Yeah, I have overcome the world. So let's do this, brothers and sisters. Let's both confess to God this morning and let's seek the comfort that he offers us. This eternal comfort that is an abiding comfort available to us now, but we look with eyes of faith, hope-filled hearts to eternity when we will experience in fullest measure the comfort for which Christ died, the comfort for which He endured ultimate discomfort on the cross. Let's confess and let's seek this morning. Would you pray with me?